Okay. Hello. I, I'm sorry, I was late. <laughs> They've just hooked up the, uh, this Galatians 3, 23, 25. So this is, this is the uh, older NIV, and uh, there are other translations that use this. I think this is the clearest uh, to, to the original Greek. So let's just read this together again. One, two, three, go. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, praise God, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So the law was put into charge to lead us to Christ. So we have no right to put anything else in charge to lead us to Christ because God put the law in charge to lead us to Christ. Amen. God put the law in charge to lead us to Christ. And before we had faith in Christ, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up under the law that was actually condemning us of our sin. And until that became clear, then, only when it became clear, then we could have faith in the whole purpose of grace, salvation. But friends, it does mean that people truly are convicted with godly sorrow about what they've done against their Heavenly Father. And we've really offended this most loving divinity, this glorious God. I mean, He sent His Son. And then when they are trembling with a sense of, wow, I've really been, a, I've been an idiot. I've been so arrogant. I can't believe it. I've been so proud. I, I remember when I got saved, I wept for days. Just so overwhelmed by His love. I was so overwhelmed because I thought back. Glenda will remember many times that I came close to death because I was getting more and more crazy in my, you know, before I got saved. I was getting more and more adventurous and more and more stupid. And I was taking chances with stupid things, riding in big surf that I shouldn't have been in, right, way beyond my pay grade, nearly drowning, being sharks in Grahamstown in the sea, and running over bridges that, that the police came to rescue me because I was just doing the most... I don't want to describe it to you because Glenda was very angry with me at the time. And then, and then I saw what a rebel I'd been against God. And it just cut me to the heart. And I got saved in a Hare Krishna ashram. Jesus came into my heart. I repented. I cried out to Him for mercy. And I don't believe that everyone has to come and have snot and throna and we respond in different ways. But I just, and I, I'm sure someone can be cut to their heart and come up to a salvation call and, yeah, okay, I'll receive Jesus. But I doubt it, really. I really doubt it. And I saw that Sharks rugby player, big, big man, he could with one punch bash me through a wall, standing there, literally his physical body shaking. And he was under such godly sorrow because... The preaching that I preached under the anointing had locked into his heart. God has investigated everything you've ever done according to the perfect justice of a righteous, infinite investigation. And every mouth is held, is silenced, and everyone is held accountable to God. And when that happens, they set up to receive Jesus Christ. So, Let's get, let's get into the practical in about five minutes. But let's, I want us to go to one more. There's many of these scriptures. But let's go to Romans 7, 
verse 13. This is how Paul the Apostle, when he met Christ on that Damascus road, let me tell you, he was set up by the law already. In some places like Hong Kong, I don't really need to preach much of the law to the lost to get them saved because in Hong Kong, everyone's living under the law. Now, the church has just put the law on them all the time. We have traditional Christians that come from traditional churches. They know nothing about the Bible. But all they know is the law. And they're not saved. Because all they know is the law. You hear what I'm saying? You can't get saved by the law. The law is put in charge to lead us to Christ. All they know is the law. But they get so exhausted, they can't live under it anymore. So they come to us, and they come into an atmosphere of grace, and they get saved. And we sit with them afterwards, and we talk to all the visitors afterwards, the newcomers, and they get saved. Now I'm telling you, most Africans don't know about what I'm teaching you today. No, no, they don't. Most democracies don't know about this. Most egalitarian societies think we can form a jury against God, and we can outvote God. See, we've outvoted you. You're not in charge anymore. <laughs> most Americans don't know about this. Most British people don't know about this. Most Australians, most New Zealanders don't know about this. Most Canadians don't know about this. Most South Africans don't know about this. Most people in the last 120 years don't know about this. And look at this one here. Paul talking about the law before he was saved. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that, so that through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. That's when, when he heard the voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus, the law had prepared him for grace. And he got solidly saved. Because the law must be put in charge. to lead us Christ. Let's go to John 16, verse 7 to 11 as well. John 16, verse 7 to 11, the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. But I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away, and this I go away, the advocate, that's the comforter, Alice Parakletos, the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us to help us. The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will not prove to the church we're wrong. He said to the world. These Christians are saying, oh, it's the Holy Spirit making you feel uncomfortable and sinful. No, the Holy Spirit does that to the world. Amen? And he only convicts the world of one sin, not all sin. The law convicts us of all sins. But the Holy Spirit convicts us of one sin, unbelief in Jesus. Because that's the one sin that Jesus, that cannot, can, that he didn't die for. That's the one we have to be convicted of. And then when we come to faith, unbelief is gone. Unbelief can never be forgiven. It was never carried on the cross. But all the sin of the law and all our other sins we ever did. Past, present, and future. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than the judgment. The judgment was 10 billion rand. Jesus paid 25 zillion billion trillion rand to make sure that the punishment was taken away forever. So he says, he says uh, where am I? So I will send it. when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong 
about sin and righteousness and judgment. But listen to this. About sin because people do not believe in me. It's the only sin he's convicting the world of. The Lord's convicting the world of every sin, holding every mouth accountable, silent, and everyone accountable. But the Holy Spirit is convicting people about their sin, sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness. Because I am going to the Father where you see me no longer. What's he talking about? He's going to go to the great high priest. He's going as the great high priest, sit down at the right hand of the Father, having made purifications for our sins, becomes the heir of all things, and is a mediator of a better covenant based on better promises, the new covenant. So he is now, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our unbelief in Jesus and convicts us that there is a free gift of righteousness available. And judgment, not judgment of hell, but judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So when you set people up with the law and they become so conscious of their sin and they realize how exceedingly sinful they really are because the background is not green anymore, it's perfectly white and they're shown for exactly what they are, then they're ready to hear the truths of the gospel. And while you're talking, the Holy Spirit's convicting them of their unbelief in Jesus and they, they're getting convicted that, hey, this guy's again about to offer me good news, the gift of righteousness. And that the devil who's been oppressing you has had power over you. You're under the power of the devil. Remember Acts 26 last night? That beast has been judged. Okay. So this is the thing. Without the law, when we go up to people and we say to them, Jesus loves you and he died for you. As I said last night, when Glenda told me that as an unbeliever, I got angry with her. I said, that's ridiculous. Why would he die for me? He wasted his time. Because I had not been dealt with by the law. I did not realize why he died for me. I did not realize how absolutely sinful I am. Because the law, I did not know yet the law, the spirituality of the law, and I had not seen myself as sinfully, absolutely sinful, that I'd broken all Ten Commandments over and over again, the spirituality of the law. See, if you knocked on someone's door and a stranger came to you and said, hello, got some good news for you. You know, you've just committed a very, very bad crime. It's very serious. And someone that doesn't even know you so loves you that they gave, they, they've given you 250,000 rand to pay off your fine. Most people would think, oh, they'll just grab the money. But actually the first effect on the human soul is how dare you say I've committed a crime. Who is this person that loves me that's accusing me of a crime? There's the gift of grace coming their way, but they, they're offended or they're indifferent because they're going, what the heck, why are you offering me grace for? How dare you insinuate I've committed a crime? But if you, before you flashed out the 250,000 rand, which you never flash out anywhere in South Africa, unless you've got a suicide wish, but anyway, but before you flash out the 250,000 rand, you actually bring photographs out of that person in their motor car. And they're driving down a road where it's a school for blind children. And there are 10 signs that say, blind children crossing road, 20 kilometers is the limit. And we got you marked as going 120 kilometers through all 10 of the signs. Now the person turns white or black, whatever your racial preference, and goes, my 
God, I, I, I didn't realize what I could have killed children. What an idiot I am. I am guilty. And someone who loves you has given you. Thank you so much. See, evangelists today use the parable of the sower to make excuse for the big fall away of lost people. Because they haven't put the law in charge to lead people to Christ. Now, if you read through the scriptures, it says the law brings understanding. It doesn't bring understanding of how to be righteous. It brings understanding of how unrighteous you are. Because the law makes no one righteous. It actually stirs up sin. It's impotent. It can only point a finger at you constantly. Amen? And so if you read those parables, parable Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8, and I think there's another one somewhere else, and I've read all, all three sections over and over again, the parable of the sower of the seed, and Jesus said, if you understand this parable, disciples, you will understand every parable in the entire Bible. And so he gives the four categories or conditions of soil, conditions of lost people. He'll give the condition of the hard heart, the hard soil, the rocky soil, the, 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 uh, the weedy soil with lots of weeds in. And the, what's the other one, Steve? Hardened, rocky, weedy, and shallow. The birds. And then the fourth one is good soil. That produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And the other three categories produce nothing. Sounds a little bit like modern day evangelism stats. 25% versus 75% backslide. Amen? Now have any of you read, which it's there over and over again, which Jesus says that the good soil is those people who had understanding. See, do you think there's just human beings walking around who are just so lucky they've got good soil in their heart and they're the only people going to get saved? That would be unjust. See, every human's heart, we've seen it, doesn't seek God, Romans chapter 1. Every human heart is hard soil or rocky soil or, or, or weedy soil or birdy soil. No one, no one gets born into this world with good soil in the heart. And so... The three, the three categories with the wrong soil, they hear the word and they believe. But they are not regenerated. As soon as hardship comes, as soon as the cares of the world come, Jesus said, as soon as the deceitfulness of riches comes, or the desire for other things comes, he says, they fall away. Because it says, Jesus said, as soon as the seed is sown, Satan comes immediately to steal the word. Okay? So, if you, if you sow the message of salvation into hard soil, into the condition of a sinner, without preparing that soil first with the law, they don't have good hearts to receive. We could spend an hour here. I don't have an hour. But I hope you got this. You got this? Because every human heart can be soil that's prepared with understanding if we put the law in charge to lead people to Christ. So signs and wonders can get the attention. Apologetics, intellectual arguments about the veracity of Christianity can get the attention. It's a good bait. And doing good works, good bait. All of those are good bait. But there must be the hook of the law 
to prepare the heart so that every condition of the heart goes, you know what, I'm wretched. I've been exceedingly ungodly against the holy God and I am deserving of judgment. And therefore, Lord, I repent. The heart's made ready. The seed of salvation is sown. And for the rest of it, they repent of godly sorrow that comes through the narrow gate. And for the rest of their life, whether it's 40, 50, 60, 70 years, they are constantly producing 30, 60, and 100 fold. Amen. Is that clear? When we say, oh, this, you know, we just, the evangelist comes and just scatters the seed, scatters the seed, scatters the seed, and oh, 75% fall away. It's not my fault. Jesus gave us license. No. It's, it's, if you understand this parable, you'll understand the mysteries of the entire kingdom. Do not sow the seed of salvation before you put the launch on and the Holy Spirit bring you conviction. All right. Okay, that's great, Rob. That's great. Okay, we got it. We got it. We got it now, Rob. We got it right. Okay, all right, all right, right. Yeah, give us some give us some practical stuff. Okay, I'm glad you asked because we're going to do that right now. Okay. So I believe there's a place for evangelists to preach what I'm saying. I know how to unpack this in messages. When when you know, you, you take me to a church where everyone's gone at really worked hard to bring as many unsaved people into that room. And that it's like eighty percent are unsaved. 20% is saying, you've, you've just said like a gun dog loose in me. I mean, I just start shivering because I just see unsaved because I love the unsaved. I didn't like being in the military in South Africa, but when I was in the military, I was like a shivering gun dog because I had lovely, stinky sinners all over me swearing. And they didn't know that I was a pastor. And up in the Caprivi Strip and on the Angolan border, you, 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 you've got 30 sinners with you night and day. You're all terrified together and you're all excited together and you're going to combat together and you get really close. You put me amongst sinners like... <laughs> so I led all 30 of my platoons across. All 30. All 30. And then I started influencing a whole regiment and so they gave me a medal of honor for lifting the morale of our, of our regiment. A Christian... Because guys were missing their wives and missing home. And they were, I was leading them to Christ. But I had a hook. So if you fill a room up with sinners, I am at my most happy. That's what Coastlands did. We had hundreds of sinners. Every week we were brought by our people. So this pastor was the happiest pastor. Because I'd feed the sheep, but I would use the Lord to hook the unbelievers in. So when I said, come now, hardened Aussies would come. So there's the preaching gift. That's an Ephesians 4 gift. Steve called me Ephesians 5 gift this morning, so I've been promoted. <laughs> but actually, the role of evangelists is not really to hold crusades. That's part of the course. Stephen did it in, in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. But actually, the role of evangelists is actually equip every believer to lead people to Christ. Because you, you, you'll never be happier. It's, it's better than sex. I'm serious. When you lead someone to Christ, you have, you have changed someone's eternal address. Now look, sex is good, eh? Sex is good. I'm 64. Don't bring Viagra near me. I do not need it. You notice, okay. Shame. Just pray for Glenda. Okay. 
Focus. Get away, Glendis. Hide away. Stop looking at me. So, yeah, I'm going to read this to you. You can write it down or you can get the recording and just record it and set it up in a way that you can, See, you can ask questions. And I'll tell you in a moment how to get through barriers and how to create interest, how to give you testimony. But yeah, I'm saying once you've got someone's interest and they're listening to you, these are six questions you can ask. And generally, most unbelievers will get four out of the six right. So whatever they get wrong, you, you've ambushed them. And then you can start using the leverage of the law as the hook. So here's the first question. You ask an unbeliever, a sinner. Number one, is there a God? Now, amazingly enough, most unbelievers, sinners, will say, yes. It just depends what kind of God they're describing. But most would say yes. Secondly, you ask, does God care about what's right and what's wrong? Does God care? Do you think God cares about what's right and what's wrong? Most will say yes. But if someone, someone says, oh, I don't know, I don't know if he cares. You know? Well, I'll say, well, if someone's uh, raped and strangled and burned your granny, granny's body, would God say, oh, well, at least he had fun? No, they would say, no, 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 man's got a, a court justice system. And they would realize, yes, things, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. When you bring it down to their level, they go, yes, no, we believe that there should be some punishment. They come burn you and rape your granny's body and say, well, you think God's going to say, well, at least the guy had fun doing that? No. So God does care about what's wrong and what's right. God does care about justice. Number three, just asking this. Are God's standards the same as ours? Are God's standards the same as human standards? Most would say, yes. That's where you tick it off. They're wrong there. Don't tell them right then. Are God's standards the same as ours? Most say yes. The Bible says most go around seeking to establish their own righteousness. Well, they will not submit to God's righteousness as a gift. Romans 10 verse 4. So self-righteousness is their problem. So their hearts are not good soil ready for the seed of salvation. Then you ask them, number four, will God punish sin or wrong? Will God, do you think God will punish sin? Do you think God will punish people for wicked things they do? Most people say yes. Makes sense. You'd be surprised. Most will say yes to that. Number number five, asking this question: Is there a hell? Well, we're not sure about that. And say to them, "Well, where's God going to send? Where's God going to send murderers and rapists and pedophiles? Where's He going to send them?" And I say, "Well, yeah, that makes sense." Why doesn't he just obliterate them? Well, because they're eternal beings. They can't be obliterated. Number six. This is the, the other one they almost always get wrong. Do you avoid going to hell by living a good life? Do you avoid going to hell by living a good life? This is where most of them say, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm living a good life. Hallelujah. I'm not perfect. They haven't seen the white background yet. So in comparison to others, they think they're living a good life. So yes, I'm trying to go to heaven by living a good life. And so you can say to them, well done. You got four out of six, correct. Four out of six, correct. That's pretty good. Then most people, well done. Very good. Now let's talk about number three. You got that one wrong. God's standards are not the same as ours. And then you go through the law. Again, it's all friendly. It's telling them. Jesus made it very clear. If you don't have the righteousness of the scribes, if you don't have a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven because they were relying on the law to be righteous. So you can start, you can start with this. Do you love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength every day? And you can see they go, mm. I don't know, man. I don't, don't think, I think if you're in doubt, you, you, you don't. And you just go through that list about looking with lust and desire. And you go through the list of the spirituality of the law. And you don't have to shout. You don't have to be mean. If someone's got an appendix problem that's sick, you don't have to hit it with a 10-foot ten, ten pole. You just prod. The Holy Spirit's just prodding. The law is making people conscious of sin, holding them accountable, starting to silence their mouths. Holy Spirit's convicting them of their unbelief in Jesus. Righteousness is available. Devil's been judged. Amen. Don't, don't, do not lack confidence because I, as a Hare Krishna, with shaved head and tilak clay from the Ganges on West Street, Smith Street, peddling Krishna consciousness, I had some brave Christians come up to me and start sharing with me Jesus Christ. And I argued them off the planet. <laughs> but when they walked away, I could hardly sleep because I was under conviction. They didn't know, but I was. Glenda knows. So you, tell the, you just tell them the standards of God. God's standards are not our standards. They're higher. They're perfect. And then you, you said that you're trying to avoid going to hell and go to heaven by, by just trying to be a good person. You were wrong on that one. So it's, it's and you can reason with them. Say, say in the court of law, the criminal has been convicted of rape or murder or breaking into a house or selling drugs. The judge says to that person, "Have you anything to say before we pass sentence on you?" And that person gets up and says, "Look, I, I know I've broken the law, but you know what? I'm going to do some good works now. I'm going to, I'm going to be different, and uh, I won't do those things again, judge." Uh, and the judge will let you know. You'll say, "Listen." According to the law of this land, you can never remove your crimes by the good things you do. Because justice must be satisfied. Justice always demands punishment. And at that point, if you see some conviction, then you can say, but you know what? Do you know what? If the Lord's made, taken the stony heart out or the weeds out, and that's becoming good, sir. You can say, but you know what? The high court of heaven's justice is fully satisfied in the integrity of the verdict of the finished work of the cross. The sacrifice was greater than the judgment. He took all your sins, past, present, and future, and has blotted them out. The way you can receive that is you need to repent of your rebellion against God. Put no reliance on your good works or bad works. Put your faith. You were locked up 
under the law until faith should be revealed. For the law was put in charge to lead you to Christ. When you come to Christ, you are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are born again. Your heart is circumcised. You're not in the grace covenant, by the way. It's a spirit covenant. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, And so, my brothers, you died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to him, who was raised from the dead, that you bear fruit unto God. One verse, miss it. The next verse says, And now you're no longer bound, no longer bound by what, but by what once bound you, but now you serve in the new way of the Spirit. You serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now you're no longer serving in the old way of the written code, but in the new way of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 says we are competent ministers, not of grace. It said we are competent ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter that kills, but of the Spirit that gives life. We are a Spirit covenant. It's wrong to tell people we're a grace covenant. We are a Spirit covenant because, because if you're born again, the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart. That could not happen before the cross. You are born again. You, you become a new creation. Spirit of God fills you. And in Galatians 5, Paul says, now you live in the Spirit, but now walk in the Spirit. It means there are Christians who live in the Spirit, but they're not walking in the Spirit. Because if, you, if you're born again, anyway, let me look up there. Now, you say, but what about grace, Rob? What about grace? Of course, the whole finished work of the cross is the ultimate revelation of grace. And because of the fullness of the finished work of the cross, which is perfect grace, Holy Spirit can stay with you from, for the rest of your life on into eternity. Under the law, which didn't have the covering of the finished work of the cross, every time you sinned, the Spirit left. That's why David, Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me, because spirit would leave. But Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, and he will never leave you. And then when you messed up or sinned as a believer, you need the Holy Spirit more than any other time. He's a comforter. He's your counselor. He's the one alongside you to help you to look at the finished work of the cross. The law has a finger that points out all your sin. Grace has a finger that points at Jesus who took away all your sin. Amen. Woo, I just felt happy saying all of that. Okay, so you can, you can listen to that again and get those six things there. Um, some ways to get under people's, uh, get under their barrier. Uh, I'll, I'll give, Jesus got under four barriers with the Samaritan woman. He had to get under the racial barrier. She was Samaritan. He was Jew. They did not mix at all. Okay? Jews felt they were way superior to the Samaritans. He had to get over the religious barrier because uh, they, they had different concepts of God. And then he had to get over the gender barrier because he was a man and she was a woman and Samaritan women weren't allowed to speak to men. And then he had to get over the moral barrier because she, was, she knew she, was, she had, had five Five relationships, five marriages, and now she was living with a man, which is not as bad as it sounds because in those days women did not have the right to divorce. Men were the only ones who had the right to divorce. So five men had divorced her. And now one man didn't honor her enough to actually marry her. So she's, she's got to get over the moral thing, though, because there's some moral issues there, and the one she's talking to is absolutely perfect. And so are you in Christ. You are the righteousness of God. In Christ. So you've got to get over the barriers, get through these barriers because the world's got barriers up for us Christians because they've seen enough weird Hollywood movies of how stupid Christians are. 
And so that's why we've got to be like Jesus. We must not be predictable and we must not come at the angle they're expecting us to. And don't just turn the light on poof, like that because they're going to get blinded and start running. So when I was up in Katima Melino and the Ghani Bridge and up there in Rindu, the Caprivi Strip, right on the Angolan border, when we're doing our preparation before we went into combat, it's amazing how everyone listens to the instructions then when they showed us the corpses of young South African soldiers who were killed in the area we were about to go into. And it kind of makes you listen very carefully to what you're being told. And in those times in our preparation, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a company of us, uh, sorry, four companies, so we had 400 soldiers. And uh, <clears throat> every night, we, it was the night off, and you were allowed to have two beers a night. And uh, some saved up for a whole week and then drank them all at once. But anyway. <laughs> and, so, and so every night the Christians wouldn't be drinking any beer and they'd be sitting in the center, Mr. Penta, of the, the, and all the lack of sinners would be out there swearing and cursing and talking about sex and all this stuff, you know. And, uh, and I'd be sitting with all the anemic, sterile little Christians having a prayer meeting for the filthy sinners out there. And I, I lasted one or two nights and I just couldn't stand it anymore. I just want to go where the sinners are, where they drink beer. I want to go there. I want to save up my beers, but I do want to go out there. So I just, after two nights, I just I slipped out and got around the fire with the sinners. They did not know I was a Christian. I just planted Victory Face Center in 1979. They didn't know I was a pastor. And I just sat there and had a beer with them and we chatted. And, and, I, and they were, they were, you just realize what unsaved men talk about. It's like fascinating. It's like so entertaining. When they put that uniform on and their wives aren't around and their kids aren't around, they become beasts, man. <laughs> and, and then the guitars passed around, so they passed me a guitar. And so I started playing the guitar. I did not sing... Hallelujah. No, I sang, I sang Bob Dylan. I sang, I sang the song that I'd you know, written about Rundu. And we're going to climb out of Rundu. And uh, one day, and, and the Flossie's coming to pick us up. And they made them all homesick. And I spoke about, I've got a lady back at home. It's the best I've ever had. And they were clapping along. Sing the Rundu song again, Rob. And I, after a few nights out there, they started saying, What's different about you? I don't know, we're kind of like like you. You've got to get them to like you before they find out you're one of those. (laughs) That you're not an alien. You are an alien, actually. You're citizens of another kingdom. (laughs) But, but, But Judas Iscariot had to kiss Jesus to identify that he was Jesus. Because he looked like everyone else. Now, if you just walk around, it wasn't like a big shadow of glory following him all the time. There he is, see the cloud of glory following him. No, he went to the toilet and did all those things. So finally said, well, what? and I wouldn't answer them. I said, well, I don't know. Said, well, what do you see different? He said, well, you don't use the F-bomb. I said, I do sometimes when I'm really angry. No, I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> No, I did not say that. I said, yeah, okay. Well, that's great. 
I think there's some better words to use, whatever. Do you want to hear some of my poems? I'll give you some. And then they just kept pressing it, and I kept on purpose. I wanted to tell them I was a Christian. I really wanted to, but I, I kept the intrigue. Salt makes things tastier. I kept the intrigue. And so it took about two or three nights, and they were asking. And then finally I said to them, okay, they asked me again, what's different about you? I said, I've got an amazing wife. No, they said, what's different about you? I said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And they went, what? Why aren't you in that prayer meeting with the dudes down there? Why aren't you there? And I said, well, you know, Jesus loved to be around guys like you. Now, they liked me already, so it was too late. I said, in fact, you know what? I am a, I am a pastor. You know, I could be a dominee if you wanted me to be one. Do you know that I could be like Steve, get the red tabs and have the, the rank of a colonel, which was fantastic, but I wanted to go incognito. I didn't want them to label me as a chaplain. I wanted them to see me sweating in the trenches, going over the top, giving covering fire, charging at the Kavanga River when a school was being attacked. I wanted to see them, me doing that too, and then find out, I'm a Christian. Well, I led that whole platoon and large numbers of that, that whole company. And eventually, the sergeant major came from Pantan because we were from Group 10. We were, we were a Pantan regiment. They brought me up in front of all of them and honored their little boy from Pantan because I was just being a believer in Christ. That's how it happens. But I put the hook in. I used the law. I used attraction, I used bait, I used Bob Dylan. Small train coming. Okay, so this, uh, this the, you could, how did Jesus get under those four barriers? Simply this, he humbled himself. What he did was he asked her for a cup of water. And that absolutely accessed him to her. You can see a response. You're a Jew. You're a man asking me for water. And he accessed her there. And she was open. And it began. The whole access. Once they, because you do something humble, and you're not all nervous. Oh, I've got to get another scalp on my belt. I've got to go st- tell Steve, I want someone else to Christ this week. No, there's nothing like that. Can I have some water? But you're a Jew and a man. You're asking me a Samaritan woman. So she gave him water and then he started using that to change the subject into a spiritual subject. Living water. And she then said, I perceive you to be a prophet. And she went and got the whole village. This ostracized woman that everyone was speaking against because she'd been married five times and was having immoral sex with a man. The whole village was ostracized. That's why she went at noontime because she didn't want to go there when the other ladies went there. She goes and convinces. She is so touched by the anointing on Jesus. She convinces almost the whole city to come out and they spend two days with Jesus and most of them believe. Because he got under the barriers. He didn't say, Hallelujah, I'm the Messiah. Praise God. So there's, there's relate, create, and, con- and convict. Relate. Don't flash the light in their face. Touch on their favorite subject, which is themselves. <laughs> Ask them questions about themselves. So before people come to Christ, 
they are all wrapped up in themselves. And people wrapped up in themselves make very small packages. But anyway, relate. Ask them, relate. Ask them questions about themselves. And also cultivate a sense of humor and it opens people up. Just be fun. Be friendly. Number two, create. Swing from the natural to the spiritual. Like a bee going from flower to flower looking for a nectar. And then ask them something like an inoffensive question like, have you had a Christian background? And if they have, you can work on that. If they haven't, you can work on that. And, and then convict. Do you see any need of God's forgiveness in your life? And that's often a good time to ask them those six questions. Because once you've accessed them, got under their barrier, and they like you, you can ask them those six questions. They will be happy to answer those questions. Now, don't do what some people do. I'm just building relationships with sinners. But I find 10 years later, they still build. I said, have you asked that person? Have you talked to them about Jesus yet? Now, I'm still building relationships. Listen, Jesus built, got under that woman's barrier, the Samaritan woman's barrier, within minutes while all his disciples were getting McDonald's. And when they got back, they were so shocked that he was talking to a woman, and they didn't have a clue what was going on. And they said, oh, you were supposed to be hungry. He says, my food is to do the Father's will. And his food was, he was refreshed, he was tired, now he's got refreshed, because he's dealing with someone who's lost. And one of the disciples said, but Lord, we just want to ask you a few theological questions about associating with a woman who's a Samaritan woman and a very questionable background to this woman. And, you know, you should be careful about your image. because we, we, we think you're the Messiah. We're confused. We're not sure. But you said you were. You said you were. <laughs> and Jesus says, look, guys, I love you, but shut up, man. Stop talking all this nonsense. And... Uh, he said, just lift up your eyes. Don't say four more months in Pantown for the harvest. Look now, lift your eyes. The harvest is white and ready for the harvesting. And something happens when we just lift up our eyes and see the condition of the lost and are moved with compassion. And now we've got you know, before we had a little feather duster, Ray Comfort says. We had a little feather duster. Oh, please come to Jesus. Can I just pat your face? Now we've got ten, we got ten cannons called the, ten, the law to prepare people's hearts. And we don't have to blast away at them. We can just ask them questions and let them get ambushed and make the mistake. And then we correct them gently because you don't have to push hard on the appendix. It's already bloated with sin. Okay, and we only finish our 12.30, Steve. So giving your testimony. What about giving your testimony? Your testimony should be the least indulgent thing. Please don't give people endless details. You know, I was born in a cold day in 1938. The prime minister at that time was Forster. And people don't want to hear those details. So yes, yes, four things. Give your testimony. Your life before you were Christian. Now, don't go into all the gory details of your most horrific details of your sin. Just say, look, I, you know, if you were into some bad things, tell them you're into some bad. If you were an addict, tell them you're an addict. But don't give them endless boring details of how, which angle you vomited and where you vomited. <laughs> and if you didn't have a terrible background, but you're a kind of normal, common sense person, you tell them that. 
You had a background like Andrew Womack, tell them that. And Because and, you can say later, but my biggest problem, my biggest arrogance was I was self-righteous. And I didn't realize I needed Jesus. That's powerful. So the second thing is, how did you realize that you needed Jesus? How did you realize that? Don't tell them, well, I had no peace and I was looking for peace. I say, oh, you poor thing, I've got peace in yoga. Don't fall into that trap. Use the hook. You've already used all the bait to get under their barrier. Use the hook. Tell them why you needed Jesus. Because you began to realize the spirituality of the law. And you realized you were self-righteous and had no hope of getting to heaven. And my father is a loving father, but he would have had to judge me with perfect integrity of his justice for breaking the law. And when you listen to these teachings over and over again, you'll hear some of the languages that, that the language that does that actually says that God really is not an insecure person with a temper tantrum. His righteous anger, his wrath is so pure and infinitely clean. It is so appropriate for God's wrath to exist because of the absolute fragrant rebellion of the planet against him. Don't let people think when you talk about God's wrath, you're talking about a dad they had that slapped them around and kicked them around. So there, there is no comparison. This is a wrath that is so holy. And then you can tell them there's only one person who had injustice done to them, and that's Jesus. He's 100% innocent, but he was punished for you. And then thirdly, uh, thirdly how, how, how do you feel now that you've made a commitment of your life to be in Christ. What is the difference? What's happened to you? And then what does it mean? To, uh, uh, and, 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 then, and then, sorry, what does it mean to me now? Oh, sorry, thirdly, first, life before you're a Christian. Secondly, how did you realize you needed Jesus? Thirdly, how did I commit my life to Christ? Fourthly, what does it mean to me now? And then fifthly, would you like to commit your life to Christ? If you put some of the hook of the law there. Are you guys still with me? Wow, 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 wow. You guys tracking? Thank you. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, some of you know the story, but be polite and be kind. Um, in 1981, I went up to Hagen. I got an impartation, the anointing, and miracles broke out in the Waring's Bakery building in Crompton Street. And every Sunday, people, there are some people here who actually were there in that time in 1981. We all look a little bit grayer now, but we are strong. And, uh, and the power of God is breaking out. And so we got more and more invites to come and pray for the sick. And so I was sitting at my desk and an Afrikaans lady, not from our church, said, hey, I hear you are Reverend Robertifus and uh, you, uh, miracles are happening. And then she said, yeah, my dad's got advanced cancer. They opened him up and his lungs are completely full of cancer. And they said, there's nothing we can do. It's spread through his whole body. And they sewed him up, and he's been given literally a few days left to live. Would you come and pray for him? I said, I said, I heard myself say yes. And, I thought, and, and she said, oh, thank you. Made an arrangement time, put the phone down, fell under my desk, and oh, God, why did I say yes? Three days, three days to live. I mean, oh, no. And I went in there, and I was really frightened, and I got in the room. And in my spirit, I heard God quietly nudging me. He says, lead him into the kingdom before you pray for him. Because healing is, is bait, but it's not the hook. 
and get healed and then die later and go to hell. Hey, to hell with that. I didn't get my dad healed, but I led him to Christ, to heaven with that. He's waiting for me. He's, he's in the cloud of witness saying, there's my boy. I said, hey, Mr. Kemper, are you a Christian? Guys, the guy's on the edge of a trance, I mean, a coma. There's big Mafutu daughter standing at the bottom of the bed. There's one other guy in the ward, because there's a private ward, sitting in someone else, another man over there. I said, are you a Christian? He says, oh, yeah, man, I am a Christian. I said, Mr. Kemper, how, do you, how, do you, how can you be sure that you're a Christian? He said, Ach, no, man, ever since I was born, man, I've just kept the law. I said, that's amazing. Mr. Kemper, you have kept the law since a little boy. All of the law. He says, yes, that's right, eh? I said, okay, well, let's start at the first one. Let's just start at the first one. I said, Mr. Kemper, have you loved this living God who created the heavens and the earth, this almighty God? Have you loved him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength every moment of every day of your life? He looks at me and he goes, Ach, you know, putting it like that. <laughs> I don't think so, eh? I said, Mr. Camper, we've got a problem here. We, we're, on, we're only at number one, and we've already got failure. I said, I could go to the second one, but I think we will find failure in all ten. But you only need to fail in one area. and Because the Bible says, if you break the law in one area, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. I said, Mr. Camper, you know that says in James chapter 2, verse 10, and Galatians 3.10. So I was using the law to get his heart ready. He said, yes, like, man, hey, I never thought about it like that, eh? I said, no, no, most people uh, don't think about that uh, like that, and that's why they've gone to hell. I said, would you like to receive Jesus, your Redeemer? The reason why Jesus went to the cross, because we can't keep the law or be saved by the law, but the law is meant to lead us to faith in Christ. He says, yes, like, man, I never thought about that, eh? He said, do you want to receive him now? He said, yeah. And we prayed together. He repented. He received Jesus Christ into his life. Daughter at the bottom of it. <laughs> he received Jesus. As he received Jesus, the room fills with the glory of God. I mean, I went from being Clark Kent to Superman. I moved, I came straight out there to God. Because I, I promise you, I'm not exactly when I went into that room, I mean, cancer and death, you can smell the death. I, I went down that aisle, and I hate hospitals as, as well. I've never been to hospital for me. But only for other people. I'm too scared to go to for me. I'd rather die in my bed at home because they do terrible things to you in those hospitals. Now, I just, I just want to stay healthy. I've never had to go to a hospital doctor's most of my life. Not a boast, just because I'm afraid of having to go. So I came in that door, I opened like this. I was not, come in. I'm like a little, you know, I'm in the face of death, and I can smell the death. I lead him to Christ, the room falls with the glory. Suddenly, like I'm standing up, Mr. Kemper! <laughs> I've just heard the living God say that you will live and not die. I curse this cancer, may it crumble into dust in the name of Jesus. That's what I said. The, his big Mafutu mama 
daughter standing at the bottom? She starts grabbing onto things. She's starting to fall over. The power of God. The person in the bed next to her, me too, me too. In the name of Jesus. I said, I'll see all of you. I walk up the door, slammed it behind me. I walk down the power of God, get into my car, vroom, 140 k's up through Westfall, hand out the window, hallelujah, hallelujah, and yeah. And suddenly that manifestation just lifted. Not because God was taking it off me because I was enjoying it too much. It's just that the manifestation comes to do a job and then you go back, you go back to being clocked in. So when it lifted off me, I went, I said, you'll live and not die. All my university roads, intellectualism. Yeah, an idiot. How can you just say that? So I left Pantheon for three weeks. I went down, seriously. Because <laughs> that daughter was big, eh? So, so, so Glenn and I went to Cape Town in our little girl. And I'm lying on these beautiful beaches. I'm going, oh, it's, too, it's a week now since then. He was nearly in a coma then. He's dead already. They got the funeral planned. He died. I said he'll live and not die. These Afrikaans people could be watchful. They're like boars, man. They can, they can kill you if they're angry. I, I'm serious. I was scared. I was scared to come back to Panta. Came back three weeks later. I walked into the bakery up there. Crompton Street. As I walk in, my futu mama runs from one side of the room. She sees me coming. She lets out a banshee yell as I walk through the door. I said, there you go. I'm going, I'm, I'm going to heaven today. <laughs> She's like, yeah! Look at Grabs me. And I just felt myself going deeper and deeper into... <laughs> and I'm not joking. I mean, I'm not lying. I mean... Next minute, my feet were lifted off the ground. And just, just, my feet were out there, just swaying. <laughs> Today I die. Today I die for saying, you will live and not die. And then I hear a saying, like I can hear a voice saying something. That my, my, head, my head's like deep in the marshmallow. I'm sunk deep in the marshmallow, but I had very good hearing in those days. And now, like about 27 years of age and I can hear well I'm not breathing very much but I can hear and I hear say within, within an hour now are you going eh he just got up in his bed and sat up and peeled an apple and he ate it eh and he just was getting so strong and strong over the next few days and then he got very very sick suddenly we thought oh is he going to die and then the doctors did examination and all the cancer had been burnt right out of his body but it been but he was getting he was getting sick because the cancer had been like cursed and it went into dust and it had to be passed out through his kidneys and that's why he had fever as the cancer was going and he's completely healed. And I said, what? He's healed! <laughs> and he came the next week or so cancer-free and for the next number of years we lived in South Africa he continued to be cancer-free. But the healing came afterwards. I, I, I used the law to prepare his heart to help be humble before God. Because he was trying to use the law to prove he's a Christian. I used the law to prove he's not righteous and he's not a Christian 
so he could get the gift of righteousness by grace. Amen. All right, so we just interject a little bit of urgency. Can we close with a bit of urgency and talk about local churches? I just want to put a little urgency in, okay? Do you mind if I do that? Okay. How many times do you think the word hell is mentioned in, in, the, in the Bible? 139 times. Okay, how many times did Jesus mention the word hell? There's different, there's different, there's Gehenna and other places just for demons, the Abbas, Greek words for that. There's actually five levels or five different places. Some are for angels and demons. But Jesus mentioned the word hell 22 times and Gehenna 11 times. Now, if he lied about the existence of these places, how can we trust him in anything? And Paul the Apostle, after the cross, speaks of wrath and hell and judgment. So we just really got to get these things right. Now, I don't like reading these scriptures because if you love people, you don't like reading these scriptures, but we, we do not love people more than God loves them. And He's the one who arranged this. We've just got to su- submit reason to revelation and saying He has integrity. He's perfect love, perfect justice. Amen. See, when, when, a, when a court judge, and it's, it's been known as a fact, when we had the death sentence, when a, when a judge sentences someone to death, often they say they turn pale. And the judge trembles because the external demands of the law demands a death sentence. But the mercy in the judge is really struggling. God has no such problem as we've just read earlier. His justice and mercy are one. So let's, let's have a quick look here. And I don't get depressed. This is the Bible. Okay, it's all scriptures God breathed. Quickly, let's look at Matthew 13, verse 40 to 43. This is Jesus speaking. As the weeds are pulled out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine, and that's, I believe, the righteous in Christ. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, ears, let him hear. Okay, the next one. Next one is Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46. Matthew 25, verse 41, 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is our Savior saying this. And it's in the Bible. I find Facebook theologians have so devalued the Bible that they just choose scriptures they want to put there and others that they don't like, they just don't put there. Verse 46 says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment. That Greek word is ionio. It's everlasting, never-ending ages. Then they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The next one. Revelation 19, to 60. Read it together with me. Come on, let's read the Bible. This is God's book. This is God's loving book. One, two, three, go. I saw heaven standing open and... 
faithful and true, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes, our Jesus, our Jesus' eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but the himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The next one. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's in the Bible. Now, I've, I know some of these extreme preachers, they have just dismissed the book of Revelation and said it's already happened. Or it would have happened, but because of the cross it won't happen. That is playing theological gymnastics at peril. This mighty revelation of the Son of God coming and wrapping up the corruption in this world and finally saying it's over, boys. That's when the goodness of God that's holding back judgment is going to say, okay, let it come now. Now, I'm not talking about God killing cities and earthquakes and wars and famines like that. God judging the world like that. I'm saying it's coming in one short period at the end of the age. And then there's, there's another one. Let's go to Revelation verse 20. You got that one? Okay. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. So there's no soul sleep. No, no extinction of consciousness. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And then the next one. Revelation 20, verse 10 to 15. And I saw the dead, great. Come on, let's read it together. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That is for people that have rejected Christ. That's not for you and me. You don't go to a great white throne. You appear before the throne of grace when you die in Christ. And you get, it's decided what you get rewarded for and what you don't get rewarded for. 1 Corinthians 3. Now let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 to 10. This is now in the epistles of the New Testament, friends. You can't say, oh, that revelation isn't real. This is the epistles of the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 to 10. All this is evidence that God's judgments are right. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Hey, Christian church, there is suffering for Jesus. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He, Jesus, not the Father, Jesus, He will punish those who do not know God 
and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, man. We are preach on some of these scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, it's Kozonia. So sorry. They will be punished. Huh? They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Okay, let's go quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. And this is speaking about unsaved people that are influencing the saved people in Ephesus. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, and he says, You were once dead in your transgressions and sins when you followed the ways of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. You were by nature objects of wrath. But God is rich in mercy made you alive in Christ Jesus. So he's not saying this to the believers about wrath. He's saying there are people influencing you that are not believers. They're influencing Christians to do corrupt and wicked things. And he says, you used to be with them. And you were part of that death. Do not be deceived. It's not you that are going to get judged. But what is happening with you getting with these people, they are going to face wrath. And you should be leading a holy life that it convicts them to get saved. But when you go to the sinners who are on their way to hell and you live a life just like them as wicked and evil and you gamble away all your money and you sleep around and you get drunk with them and take drugs with them, but hey, I'm under grace. You don't, you're not, you don't love them. The writer's trying to say, they are going to wrath and you're not helping them by sinning with them. You were once objects of wrath. Now you've been given eternal life. You've been given righteousness. You will never be judged. But what about them? Isn't it that Christians should, even though we're free to drink wine, I told you how to bear with the boys, but we're free to do that. But isn't it, aren't we, shouldn't we be selective with our freedom? Some people are so trying to prove the under grace that they, they drink in front of people that really have a problem with that. And it stumbles them. And we do things and we flirt in ways with people we shouldn't be flirting with. Our lives should be actually impeccable. And holy because we are living in the Spirit and we're walking in the Spirit. And we have power against sin now. Out of our new nature. And if we make a mistake, we fall into the arms of grace. But don't sleep in those arms or in the safety net for the rest of your life. Get up, get on that straight and narrow, and keep showing forth a life that unbelievers can't find fault with. Don't say to people who are not Christians, well, I'm a sinner just like you. You're lying to them. You are a new creation. You say to them, I'm a sinner just like you. They say, well, what's the point of me being like you? Because I'm already like you. So I've told you the context. So don't get condemned for those who are in Christ. The context is don't, don't confuse the unbelievers. Help them to see they're facing wrath one day. These are five verse For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. He's not saying don't be associated with those people who get around them. Just don't do the things they're doing. So that you can be salt and light. So that you can bring forth hope to them. Amen. I've never preached in all my years as a grace preacher that grace gives us the right to just do what we want. I said earlier on, something that's wrong under the law is also wrong under grace. But under the law, we do it for the wrong reason and we can never be free under the law. But in grace, we start doing the right thing with the right motive. And grace, people, we should so love the lost that we actually want our light to shine, to attract them. Attract them with the bait of a beautiful life. Don't be a hypocrite. If you make a mistake in front of them, apologize and say, I shouldn't have done that. Okay. All right, you still with me? Okay, I'm trying to introduce urgency here. There needs to be urgency about this evangelism, this culture of evangelism in every local church around the world. In 1979, up in the Capri border, I mentioned earlier, I was, I was out to get every soldier saved. And there was a man they called Lieutenant Bosch. Everything I tried, I couldn't get him saved. I preached to him. I used the hook of the law. I played Bob Dylan to him. I went to the officer's mess. I was not an officer. I want to leave that impression. I went to the officer's mess because they liked me to play the guitar. I'm not really a good guitar player, but they didn't have many options. And, uh, and I would get privately with Mr. Uh, Lieutenant Bosch, and I'd say, come on, Lieutenant, you've got to get saved. You've got to get saved. And he said, ah, I give him the law. Well, we clawed out with a rave at Rindu, flew back with a flossy. Glenda was so happy to see me come home. And I didn't see Mr. Uh, Lieutenant Bosch for 25 years. Didn't see him for 25 years. Now living in Australia. I come to preach at Victory Face Center, which was still called Victory Face Center, on the property. It's, it's tired. It's, it's advertised. It's going to be an evangelism service. I bring the lost. The place is packed. I preach the wonderful Jesus, and I put the hook of the law in. And I called people forward, and about 120 people came forward. Crowd at the front there, under conviction. And I'm looking at this. I'm just so happy to see people coming to Christ. And I'm about to pray the prayer of faith with them. And I look up, and right at the back, looking very sheepish, very embarrassed, is Lieutenant Bosch. He's come forward to receive Christ. And I couldn't help myself. I've been, I've been out of the army now for 25 years or whatever it is. I look up and I say, Lieutenant Bosch! I said, what are you doing here? And he was like, oh, sorry. Like, I said, attention! <laughs> anyway. So anyway, we, we led him on to Christ, and he made his way through to me, and he said, Rob, I would never forget. It's never left me. I've been under conviction for 25 years. And, and, and I heard you were back in South Africa, and I was walking down the Kloof Gorge, and I heard a voice inside of me say, you go to those meetings. Now, 
and you give your life to me at that meeting. And he said, that's why I'm here and that's why I've given my life to you. One week later, Lieutenant Bosch was shot dead in Hillcrest. And he didn't go to those horrible places. Because a little boy from Pinetown was urgent. I've got to get everybody saved. And I don't think I'm an evangelist. I think I have the anointing or the grace of an evangelist on me. Hey, Lieutenant Bosch. You made it. You heard a voice. The voice of a father that loved him so much. And if God was mean, he would have said, Lieutenant Bosch had enough times. I'm not going to bother to talk to him in Cliff Gorge. No, he's wanting everyone to be saved. He loves everyone. God does, the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't, oh, another one gone to hell. Yippee! No, another one who didn't receive the grace of the finished work of the cross. So unnecessary, the casualty rate, when we give up the culture of evangelism that's biblical. Now, let me close with the local church. There's a story of a woman in New Zealand. It's a true story. She's walking with a little girl of two to three years of age on a river bank. And the child slipped in and the mother couldn't swim. She began to scream as she watched the child drown. When other people arrived, it was too late. The child was drowned. But as they stepped into the water, they found that the water was only waist deep. If only she had known, she would have stepped in and saved her child. Satan would try and stand on the river bank of fear and have us believers in churches think that the waters of evangelism are far too deep for our churches. But as we lead our churches into these murky waters, we will find our feet stand firm. Um, wow. Feeling the love of God now for the lost. Maybe you feel that love of God for the lost right now. I'm trying to find something here. Okay, when I was in Australia, it's a very different country to South Africa. Do not be fooled. It's very different. The culture is very different. And I could see a lot of churches weren't seeing people saved. And I thought, I can't believe that. In South Africa, in Victory Face Center, we saw people saved every week. Every single week. And so I started doing some research and, you know, I thought, what, what can we do? Should we go out on the streets? We, what, what can we do? So I did some research. And yes, yes, when you're thinking about the lost, here are the stats about what activity attracts lost people to church. Now, please understand, I'm not saying what attracts Christians to church because actually I'm not that excited about attracting Christians to church. I mean, they're welcome because we're getting a lot of tra traditional Chinese churchgoers coming to our church now, but they, they come unsaved. So I'm glad they're coming because we're leading them to Christ. But 1% come to church from door knocking. You know what a high-cost door knocking is in South Africa? I tried it for a, a year. You're going to have to get bitten a number of times by dogs. 1%. 2% come because of social care programs. 3% come 
because of bereavement. Surely our evangelism is not waiting for people to die so that the bereaved will come to church. 3%. 3% come because of children's church. Now let me explain. I did not say Christians. Christians will come if you've got a great children's church program. Christians will leave churches if the church program isn't good. But I'm not talking about catering only to Christians. I'm talking about unsaved. So have the best children program you can. It's for the believers. But for unsaved people, only 3% come because you've got a children's program. 6% come through advertising on the media and newspapers. 6% come. Well, maybe today there's more that will come because of media. Number six, 8% come because of pastoral staff doing weddings and funerals. 8%. Now get this, the last one. How many realize what's left? We've used up 23%. So there's 77% of people will come to your church, lost people will come to your church because someone brought them to the service. All the others, all six, only bring 23% and they cost lots of money and time. But 77% come because members of the church bring them to the service. Now notice, I did not say invite them, I said bring them. And if you look through Jesus' parables, he talks about bringing people, not inviting them. Because if you invite them, you leave the initiative with the sinner. But if you bring them, you leave the initiative with the believer. Because when you say, I'll pick you up at this time, I'll have a taxi, I'll be in the taxi, I'll come and pick you up, or I'll come with you in the train, I'll come with you in the bus, I will come and pick you up, and I will bring you. You, you have the initiative in your hands. But when you invite them and you think, oh, praise God, I invited them, surely they're going to come. A lot of them won't turn up because now you put the initiative in their hands and the devil's just going to come at them. You stop them coming. Suddenly, auntie's so-and-so is turning up and, oh, and all the distractions. So 77% come. So I took six weeks in my pulpit to teach on a bringing culture. And, and if I had the time, I'd unpack it because I don't have six weeks yet. But I took six weeks at Coastlands. We met in a basketball stadium. And when we set that in order, a bringing culture, and I, I got under people's cases. I said, I don't want to be mean, but I am mean. I'm called to be mean. I'm not a pastor, so don't worry about it. I'm not called to be a pastor. I've got pastors on my team, but I'm called to be a provoker. I'm called to love you so much that I'm not going to let you sit on your bums. You're going to get active here in this church. So yeah, we went from 500 people to 1,500 people, but I'm telling you, and that 1,500 people, every one of them were wildly passionate. It didn't have my accent. It's just I had to work blooming hard. About six months ago, I was sitting in my study, and I found my journals from Coastlands, 1997 to 99, and I started reading, and I was crying, because I thought, gee, you were going through hell. Church was exploding with growth, but at 3 o'clock in the morning in my journal, I feel very discouraged, wonder if I'm even called to be a minister. So much negativity. I feel so oppressed. Then the, I felt the glory of God came in. My shoulders came back. I said, Lord, I can do it. Saw the date. Walked along the cliffs of the sea for three hours today, praying for Adelaide and for Australia and for coastlands. Agonized in the spirit, praying in tongues for three hours. Got the breakthrough. Gift of faith came. Breakthrough. 
behind any growing church that's growing with the, wrong mo- with the right motives and using the right biblical methods. Not just trying to get everyone in for entertainment. There's pain, sacrifice. The church is not built on a gifted few, but on the sacrifices of many. Every believer is a disciple and should be giving a pattern of life. So I could, we could get 400 Australians. Australians, you're quite rebellious people. Not like South Africans. South Africans are far less rebellious. It's just that we grew up with a more polite culture. Although we're always at war. But anyway. Australians, like you tell them something in the herd. I don't know who you think you are. And we South Africans would say this. Hey, listen to me now. I'm telling you now, eh? That, so, Aussies hear that. Hey, don't talk to us like that. 400 Australians in our church gave up their Saturday morning sleeping to be in our basketball stadium six o'clock Saturday morning to pray for one and a half hours, sometimes one hour non-stop in intense tongues. And it was shifting the atmosphere. Then I took all my home group leaders away. We had, uh, I think, 60 home groups at that stage. I took them all away for a weekend. And I taught them how to build relationships in the home groups, how to pray for one another, how to reinforce the vision that's been preached on Sunday. But then I also taught them to become evangelistically potent. So one of the things you do every week, you all pray together and you think about who you're going to bring, not invite, bring this Sunday. And you write those names down. And you pray for those people. And on Friday I'd receive a fax. It was fax machines in those days. Because of security, some people going back to fax machines. No, anyway, it was fax machines. And I'd get hundreds and hundreds of potential unsaved people that are coming, that were being invited and brought. And I could tell you on a Friday, you're getting your message ready for Sunday. And when you just see all these names, these represent unsaved people in a condition of death and judgment. And suddenly, your heart gets touched by this. And suddenly, you're shaping your message to feed and equip God's people but you're also thinking about what hook and how you're going to put something in your message that is attractive, that has a bait, but is also going to convict them of their need of salvation. And so then what happened from 1997 to 2000, I handed over the church to 2000. Every single Sunday morning and every single Sunday night, people came rushing forward to get saved. We were, our goal was to see at least 50 people saved. We often got about 49. We never hit 50, but we were 49, 30, 25, sometimes whatever. But they were coming every week without fail. Every week without fail coming in. Now, I'm, I'm talking about lead the lost to Christ out there. I'm talking about how the church becomes a combined harvester to pull the, the nets in together. So I was saying, I say, in the home groups you work like that, Home groups work like that, giving the names, faxing it to me, uh, all, the, all the greeters. You, 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 when you're out there, you're greeting people. Unsaved people are coming onto our promise, premises. Greet them. You're all pulling the nets and worship teams. Th- just think about the lost that are going to be here. We're not going to be seeker sensible. We're going to have the power of God moving, glory in the house, bold preaching. We're not being seeker sensible. But we're all pulling the nets in together. So everyone that gets saved, we're all celebrating equal reward. And the Aussies rose to it. Because one Sunday night, I was trying to close the service and I started prophesying and I prophesied for 20 minutes. And in the prophecy, 
God was speaking over our church. There was about 600 people there. That prophetic word took us from 600 to 1,500 people in a short space of time. God says, you're always calling out to me for more power. Always calling out to me for more miracles. Always calling out to me for more grace. More signs and wonders. He said, why should I work my power in your midst if the lost and the broken are not here? He said, healing is the children's bread. I'm prophesying this. He said, healing is the children's bread. Every believer has access to healing. It's your bread. It's your basic food. He said, but there are people out there who don't know their left hand from their right hand. They're caught up and ensnared in all kinds of demonic stuff. He says, why should I bring more power for my people who healing is their bread? Who already say, but he said, if you will bring the homosexuals in, and you will bring the cripples in, and you will bring the demonized in, and if you will bring the criminals in, and if you will bring the wealthy who are lost in, and you'll bring the poor in, and if you just bring them in, he said, then I'll show forth my power in your midst, because my power comes for a purpose. My power doesn't come to just tickle my people's ears. My power comes, the Holy Spirit is an evangelist. When the Holy Spirit comes in, He comes with power to convict people of their unbelief, their sin of unbelief in Jesus. He comes to give you power to be a witness. He doesn't give you power just for you to have a happy Sunday service. He gives you power. So that when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were cut to the heart because of the preaching that was under power with a hook in it. And so... Aussies, if you convince them it's God, they're going to do it. So the next week, man, there are all the type of people I said in that prophetic word. It was the weirdest people. They had been pulled in. They had been dragged in. Maybe some of our members of our group punched them and dragged them in. I mean, Aussies just never know what they're going to do next, honestly. There's a woman there in her wheelchair, had been in there for years. She was just a bag, she was just like ropes. Anyway, she got out the wheelchair and walked. Went on the, went on the newspaper. That's the first Sunday after I said, well, I didn't say, God said, bring the lost John, I'll show you power. That doesn't mean to say every cripple you bring in is going to get out the wheelchair. It can become like that. And from that Sunday, and working with the home groups combined, I'm, I'm try, I know I'm laboring it, you might be tired, so am I. But I'm laboring this because I'm saying, if you want to go from where you are to there, there are strategic, sacrificial steps. And I, I feel in this house, the vast majority are, are right with that. It's like, you've been on this since January this year. Well done. So what, what, I'm turning into the threefold thing. We looked at the stats, and we realized 77% will come if we develop a bringing culture. That's not to stop people getting people saved. You know, the more people see people being saved in your service, the more they want to lead people to Christ out there. It just becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it just gathers its own momentum, pulls itself forward. That's why I call it a culture. Don't start evangelism programs. You have to start an evangelism culture in the house. You cannot grow certain plants in the wrong climate. They put up a greenhouse or have them growing in the right climate. Amen? So a culture is actually what produces the right climate for something. You have to build an evangelism culture. If you say, we want to go to being a seeker sensible church and we want to direct the whole meeting for the lost, so everything from now on is about the lost, and you don't build a culture, what, what, what will happen is no one will bring the lost. So the preacher will be preaching to the same old, same old saved. 
Amen? But if you want to see the lost saved, then you've got to build. It took me three things I did. We built an evangelism culture by six weeks of talking about a bringing culture. Then I took home group leaders aside and talked about care for each other, love each other, pray for each other, but give the names. They didn't all like it, by the way. You know what it's like to be a lead elder? Yeah, now we're going to be evangelistic potent, and we're not just going to look after ourselves, but we're going to start looking out there, writing names down, and actually sending them to me. If there's any rebellion in those leaders, they're going to get affronted. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be accountable to that. I don't know. I'm just a South African leading Australian church, so I let them know, as a South African, and the anointing on me, if you don't want this assignment, step off being a home group leader. Because I do not want any home groups that are not moving in this culture of actually caring for the lost. Because you're getting an incestuous, inward-looking group. And it's so boring. That's my brother Daryl's and my other brother Daryl. We know everything about each other's lives now. We're so bored about each other's lives. And how are you, children? And we don't want anyone else to come to this home group because we're all happy with each other and we're bored. But we I would never go to one of those home groups. I'd hate it. I'd kick the chairs over. I'd start punching people. I'd say, let's get up and get the lost saved. Then we can bring them here. It's a weird thing, man. So I, I felt that, you know, 60 home group leader come. I felt a little bit of a rumble. I said, stop that right now. I'm preaching. I'm talking to you. Stop that. We're doing this. The senior leader said it. And I said, give me your names if you don't want to do this, and we'll find someone else to lead your group or whatever. But I don't want you do, leading a group if you don't care about the lost. I've just given you six weeks of a bringing culture. What part of it? That, that's not a sudden thing I'm jumping on you. I don't tolerate that attitude. I don't want someone leading a home group that thinks to hell with the lost. I'm not an evangelist. No, not in this church. Go to those other churches. I'm not afraid to lose people. I don't want to push people out. But if we're going to build a culture, I'm going to build a culture. Because I know a culture will grow without trying. Strategies are important, but cultures are infinitely more important than strategies. Because the strategies will work only if you've got the right culture. And if you've got open group leaders that are thinking to hell with the lost, or I'm a universalist and they're already saved, you should get them out of leadership. So we taught a bringing culture for six weeks. I took the home group's leaders away and uh, 95% of them aligned with that. And then I had that prophetic word. So from 1997 to 2000, every week people would stream out to the front. That Sunday night, the home group that had brought them, the home group that prayed for them and had brought them, the home group would come up with those people to the front. Then that home group, would bring that person to the Sunday night meeting. Yes, we had two meetings a Sunday. One Sunday night, we had 900 people there without a guest speaker. And this morning was bigger service. In Australia, with 400 people at the prayer meeting on Saturday, praying for the lost, praying for breakthrough. They come up with a lost person. They'd receive Christ. They would bring that, lost per- that safe, newly saved person back to the service that night and that home group would baptize them in the tank. Publicly. That night. 30% we had to pull out the tank because they looked like they were being electrocuted because the power of God was so strong. And on Wednesday that week they were in the home group surrounded by people discipling them. And that rhythm for three years just worked. 
600 people to 1,500 people in those three or so years. Most of the growth coming from conversions. And all of it was recorded by my administrator. All the names, so I'm not just talking nonsense. So sad to see when leadership takes something on like that. And don't bother to keep that culture. Be very careful, Steve, who you ever hand over to. The lost being saved in a local church, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens by developing a culture, a mindset, and an attitude. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. We're nearly finished. Well, I think we should finish there. I just want to read one more thing to you, but I want you to ask you, won't you please stand? And I really, in the spirit, want to salute you for being here today and most of you last night. I want to read I want to read this thing. It seems so irrelevant, maybe in the natural, but I think it's so relevant. I just want to read what Oral Roberts said about Jesus in every book of the Bible. Because this is all for the honor of the King of Kings. And I got ten minutes before closing time. Just close your eyes, lift your hands if you want. Jesus. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar and cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judge, he is our deliverer. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken walls of shattered lives. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is our lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the eternal husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer and the Holy Spirit and power. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our savior. In, in, in Jonah, he is grace reaching out as a missionary evangelist. In Micah, he is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is our avenger. In Habakkuk, he is the evangelist pleading for a revival. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain open to the house of David for, the, for sin and uncleanliness. 
And Malachi is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is the Messiah. In Mark, he is the wonder worker. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts, he is the promise of the Holy Spirit and power. In Romans, he is the justifier. In First and Second Corinthians, he is our sanctifier. In Ephesians, he is the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Galatians, sorry, he is the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he is the Christ of unsearchable riches. In the Philippines, he is the, he is the Lord God who supplies all our needs. In Colossians, he is the He's the, he's, the, he's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. In First and Second Thessalonians, He's our soon-coming King. In First and Timothy, is the mediator between God and man. In Titus, He is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, He is, a, he is the friend of the oppressed. In Hebrews, He is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, He is the, he is the Lord that heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, He is the chief shepherd who soon shall appear. In First, Second, and Third John, He is love. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with the ten thousands of the saints. In Revelations, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you just lift your hands to the head of the church? Jesus, for a moment, is Gareth still here? Why don't you come and just worship him for a while? Say, Lord, help me by the Holy Spirit to lift up my eyes and see the harvest fields. The water is not too deep for us to be able to stand in and reach out. These are the last days, whatever you see that as. I believe this uh, impartation has come as the word's been preached. God's imparted things to you, heart, your hearts and minds. Um, I do believe that happens when any Ephesians 4 grace gift speaks. And I believe in this area... And wherever Glenda and I go and we get into this, people just stir, get stirred up and start doing it. But I, I really want to ask you um, to help each other to stay on fire for this and to build the culture. Don't be disappointed by results. Just build the culture of biblical evangelism. I'm not promoting my ministry, but listen to these three teachings several times. Catch it. It's taken me 40 years to learn these things. 40 years of experience. And for me, it works. It works. We've seen it work. Part of me longs for the day when I can mainly just run in the harvest fields. I want to stand in front of hundreds of thousands and preach for salvation. That's my dream. I see it in my spirit. Just lift your hands and say, Father, Paul writes to Timothy, and Timothy clearly was an apostle. He was leading the church at Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. Let's just become part of your DNA, of your soul. Just call to, answer, just call to the Lord for one minute. Say, Lord, whatever I need to shift to a higher level in revelation and understanding on this subject. Help me, Father. Help me. Whatever area I'm fearful in, fill me with love, Father. Your love for me and your love for the lost. Help me to feel and experience your love for the lost. I promise you this, that you will not always feel a burden for the lost. But you don't have to obey God just because you have a burden. Just obey because it's the right thing. 
you know, last night I felt, and I said to Glenda going home, this house is, the, the house is full of people that have a heart for the lost. And that's exactly what I feel again today. The house is full of people who have a heart for the lost. Just catch something in the, in the Holy Spirit now. I would deliberately go and expose myself to the ministry of evangelists very often. See the way they do salvation course. Listen to how they preach. Catch that anointing.
Jesus. Thank you for saving us, Jesus. Thank you for wrestling in Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Thank you, Jesus, as we look at you. You're the author and the perfecter of our faith. As we see that you endured the cross, because you saw the joy set before you. Many sons and daughters coming into salvation. You tasted death for every man and woman to bring many sons and daughters into the realms of glory. How you love us, Jesus. You loved us and gave yourself for us. Think of your name. He had you on his mind when he went to that cross. He loved you and gave himself for you. The only man that's ever been treated unjustly by the Father. And Isaiah 53 says, it was the Father's pleasure to bruise him. The Father was not a child basher. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit had agreed before time began. For you were born before the foundation of the world. He predestinated in love every man and woman. And, want, and He's called everyone into salvation. When you share the hook and the bait, just remember that there's a sovereign call pulling them towards salvation in Christ. It's not your fault if they resist and choose lostness. Just think of that. Someone got to you and you got saved. Someone brought the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the truth of your sin to you and then showed you the grace. Romans 10, Paul says, How can anyone believe unless they have a preacher? The word faith comes by hearing. Someone has to go tell them. God hasn't called you to try and save everybody you meet. Jesus didn't try to save everyone he met. But I pray, Father, even right now for an impartation of a supernatural evangelist anointing. I pray the grace of evangelism, the culture of the kingdom of evangelism over this house, over every person. I speak boldness and courage and freedom. I speak a joy, Lord, and, a, and like a romantic intrigue about the fragrance of leading people to Christ. The wonder of the sound of the angels singing when one sinner comes to salvation. Lord, we want to bring so much joy to the angelic hosts. Would you assign increased activity of angels around us, Father, to, to bring messages from heaven like the way. take one more minute finish it's just a glory coming upon us right now
I just feel the Father's tenderness and the Father's pleasure and the Father's joy at the decisions He see people make in their hearts. Many from January at the beginning of this year. What Glenda and I are doing here is just reinforcing what God's already directing prophetically in this house and the houses associated here or joining us today. And so, Father, I thank you for the pleasure I feel in my heart as you look over this house and your affections towards this house and their willingness to be reapers in a white harvest, ready for harvest. Thank you, Father. Isn't it amazing that angels can't preach the gospel? Angels had to tell Cornelius, send men to Joppa. There's a man there that has the words of life. You know that the, let's, re, let's release that. Father, we declare the releasing of angelic hosts all across associations and connections we have in the business world, amongst family members, that angelic messengers come to them, knock on the door of their hearts, prompt them to come and talk to us, prompt them to go to church, prompt them to go to a place, that there's a supernatural prompting for Lord, we see that as Cornelius obeyed that, as a Roman father, as a Gentile, as he obeyed that, he invited a Jewish apostle who came in and immediately the preaching of the word went out. The power of heaven fell upon them and they were saved and baptized so fast and so quickly. Lord, we believe for speeding up of this work and acceleration. Lord, you're in a hurry to see the lost saved. You're in a hurry, Father, to see multitudes in South Africa radically born again. We cry out to you, Lord, for counterfeit converts, men and women that have had a false salvation because of a false introduction, a false incentive. All they got was a bait, but no hook. We cry out to you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit who loves them will convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We pray that they will meet people that will give them the hook and show them the real need of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, across the highway area that the voice of the living God will be heard even as Lieutenant Bosch walking in Cliff Gorge heard a voice tell him, Go to Victory Face Center. Rob Riffis will be speaking there. Might have been the voice of an angel. I don't know. But a messenger from heaven, Lord, release your messengers from the supernatural realm of heaven to speak into the hearts of unsaved men and women and call them into the nets of salvation. Call them into the context where they would be born again. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you that your face shines upon your upon this family. Thank you, your face shines upon us. Thank you, you've turned your face towards us and you bless us. Thank you for the great commission. Thank you for the anointing for successful and fruitful fishing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give Jesus a big hand. Thank you very much.